Our identity in Christ, that's where we're going to be looking at today. If you open your Bibles to John chapter 18, that's where we're going to find the scripture for this morning. We are marching through uh, Jesus' last hours. Um, When you get to Palm Sunday in any of the Gospels, you're you're at Jesus' last week. I am pretty sure... 33% 33% of the gospel, maybe even more of that, is written about the last week of Jesus' life. And so that's pretty amazing to me how um, there's a lot of parables, there's a lot of lessons. There, Jesus clears the temple uh, again during that time. There's just so many things that go on this last week, and, and we learn so much about our God just spending a week with him. So can you imagine when we get into his word on a daily basis on how much we can to learn about him even more? The character that he shows us and that exemplified. I think you can see from the gospel of John that this isn't anything out of characteristic of what Jesus did. I believe that John wrote his gospel forth. Okay, I believe that John wrote it um, probably right around 67-ish, somewhere in there, uh, right before Rome fell. And uh, then he, so maybe 66, and then around 67 he wrote Revelation. Three John and Revelation he wrote after that. Okay, Revelation was kind of a follow-up to his first testament in a sense, and then God revealed him Revelation, and so he wrote that down as well. So as we get into John 18, we're going to read the whole chapter uh, this morning as we go through. So bear with me. We're going to read the first 18 verses of chapter 18. And so there's three different pericopes that that run through this. And so as we get through this, you'll see how they um, come about. After saying these things... So after saying what things, he was talking to his disciples, right? In John 17, he was praying to God. He gets done with his prayer. He says, come, my hour has come. Okay? So after saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and the Pharisees have given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now... With blazing torches and lanterns and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully recognized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Jesus said, I am he, and they drew back and fell to the ground. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? Again, they replied, Jesus of Nazareth, I told you that I am he, and since I I am the one that you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement, I did not lose a single one of those you have given me, which he just prayed the, the chapter previous. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the ear, the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave, but Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword, put it in its sheath. I shall 
shall I not drink of the cup of suffering the Father has given me? Which he's told them three times prior to this already. So the soldiers and their commanding officers, the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. First, they took him to Anus because he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest of the time. Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, it is better that one man should die for the people, which he wasn't lying, was he? It was better that one man die for the people. However, it's not quite what he meant. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another of the disciples, a.k.a. John. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of these man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire, and they stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Our first point this morning is Jesus knew his identity, and Peter did not. Why would I say something like that? Because Peter thought he knew his identity. He thought his identity was in Christ the Messiah, which it eventually becomes in Christ the Messiah, but he thought that Jesus was coming to create an earthly kingdom. Thus the violence, thus the sword, thus the, um, the prating around, like now's the time, now we're going to move, and that's not how it happened. So there's a couple things that I, I did notice in this. I didn't write in my sermon, but, but I, I was going to, didn't, and then uh, just felt prompted by the Holy Spirit. Notice that Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley, right? What do we have in the Kidron Valley? That time and today, we have... Graves. We have tons of tombs would be in the Kidron Valley. This is where uh, the offal um, would come. They would throw the blood of the sacrifice, would drain down into this, and would drain through that. So Jesus actually had to cross this um, symbolism to get into to the olive grove. What's the olive grove? What's the olive tree symbolized in Jewish history? It symbolizes the Jews, okay? He goes to the olive grove to be betrayed by the Jews, his own people. And then he crosses back through death and up to life, which was to die on the cross. So he's bringing his people back to him through the dying on the cross. And I just thought that symbolism was pretty powerful and amazing. I, I didn't get a chance to go there this morning um, because I took three different passages and I'm, I'm, I'm combining it in one, one sermon um, so I can finish off John, pretty much. So why did Jesus come to earth? He came as a ransom payment, didn't he? You ever hear of uh, someone who someone's kidnapped? They have to be ransomed to get out of that. Right? They're there. They need to have a payment acceptable of the value of the person that was kidnapped. Well, we were kidnapped by sin, so. What did God give as a payment to redeem us? Yeah, he gave Jesus Christ his son, and he is our redeemer. He's our, if we, without Jesus Christ, we don't have redemption. And, and his sacrifice paid our debt. He, his raising to life opened the way to heaven through him. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How does that happen? 
Well, first he defeats death first, and then he opens the door so that we can go through. He calls himself the sheep gate, and we can't get to heaven without the gate being open. He is the gate that allows us to go through. So there's two reasons I place my hope in him. Through Jesus, I get to go to heaven and be in fellowship with him. And the second, which is equally important, through Jesus, I can take others with me. We can't take anything to heaven that are worldly possessions. But we can take our friends and our family, can't we? Guess what? We can also take those who hate us, who mock us, and are our enemies as well. And they can become friends. God says to pray for them and to walk with them. As I joke around, that's the, vo- the verse I like to scratch out of the Bible, but I obviously don't. Uh, but that's, I do that because it's, I want to do that because it's convicting in my heart, right? God wants us to be praying for all the people. Christ is the key to victory. And if we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, because God's grace to me, I have laid a foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay it on any foundation other than the one we have already have, Jesus Christ. Amen? That. Paul sums it up so well right there. If we're not building on Jesus Christ, what are we building on? That's why we continually to study the scripture for what it has to say for itself. And then we go look at the other commentaries. Then we go look for other sources. But you use scripture first to interpret scripture. Okay? Scripture is our first commentary. Okay? And the first person, the first place we should go if Jesus talks about it, that's where we should go first, okay? Not our strongs or not our um, anybody else that may be popular in our commentaries. We should go to the, the Bible first. If we are still struggling with it, then maybe we go and look at something else, an outside source. So look at Christ in John 18, verses 5 and verse 8. When asked... For he identifies himself with authority. Does Jesus know who he is? Do he, does he know what he stands for? That's a little bit different than Jesus Christ's superstar. In that play, Jesus doesn't know what he is. He's struggling with his identity. That is not the Christ that I know. The Christ I know knows that he's the Son of God, knows he has the authority of God, and knows how to proceed the next step. He is so gracious in proceeding in that next step, he asks them twice and then waits till they get up so they can arrest him. Could you imagine somebody having that much authority? You're taking on the sins of the world. You have to have that much glory, in a sense, to combat that sin, in a sense, that it comes out of your mouth that you have that much authority, it knocks them down. That's kind of how I look at that situation. I don't know if that's necessarily the biblical way to look at it, but there's something that they fell backwards to, and I believe it's the authority of Christ. So they fell down when they heard this. Additionally, Jesus placed the disciples under his authority once more and says one last time, he tells the mob to let his disciples go. And they don't argue with him. No, they need to come in with questioning too. No, you're going to let them go. 
Okay, we'll listen to it. At that point, it's kind of when Jesus submits to their authority the rest of the way through. That's the last command that Jesus gives, except for maybe the command to give up his life. You could probably say that is, and that's pretty amazing to me. Jesus' last act, his last prayer is protection, and his last act is protection against or for his disciples or against their harm. Peter, on the other hand, has placed himself under his own authority, and he draws his sword and he cuts off the right ear of Malchus, one of the servants of the high priest. Jesus rebukes him in verse 10 after he heals Malchus. We see that in one of the other Gospels. He grabs, either picks up his ear or he goes up and touches his ear, and the ear reforms. Who does that? Yeah. Nobody but God, nobody but the Messiah can do something like that. You just, you, it doesn't happen. It's like, ye who has ears to hear, ding, let them hear, right? And I often jokingly think to myself, man, Peter was a horrible shot. Can you imagine? He just got the ear. But if you think about it, if he goes through for the neck and Malchus ducks, it's going to slice his ear off, right, like that. So maybe he wasn't such a bad shot. Maybe uh, God's grace was in that and allowed Malchus to have the extra umption and his gumption to move so that Peter would be safe. So Peter does a good job of exemplifying human behavior by acting in this brash manner. I look at Peter in the Bible, and I can put myself in his shoes so easy. I don't know about you guys, but I tend to run ahead a little bit um, more than the average bear. So I want to ask ourselves, how are we like Peter? Are we quick to speak? Quick to get angry? Maybe we're quick to self-loathe and say that we're not good enough. It was my fault. I shouldn't have let him do that. Right? Those, that, that would be the opposite. Quick to anger is like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this because you did this. The other one would be self-loathing. Oh, he got angry because I did this. Right? Can you see how they go hand in hand? They usually are opposites. So are we quick to speak, quick to get angry? Do we have a hard time to hear the Lord when he gives us a command right in our faces? Don't swing the sword, Shane. <laughs> oh, that sword? <laughs> uh, if you would have told me sooner. No, I'm God. I pretty much told you right when I needed to tell you. Oh, dear. How can I combat that in my life? How can I combat swinging that sword? How can I slow it down? How can I even get to the point where I have compassion instead of anger for these people? Well, it starts by just not getting angry. That's problem solved, right? Just don't get angry. That's easy. That's ridiculous, right? Um, The more and more we build an emotion like that, the easier and easier it is to run to that emotion. So it's hard that we built up to this anger, now we can do it quickly. That makes me a man. I can be angry when I want to be, right? 
But what's, that's foolishness. Because when we grow up in like that, um, we can't just put it away like that, can we? I don't know about you, if you've ever struggled with something like that, particularly anger, it is hard to put away. So you need to train yourself to see the bigger picture. What am I missing? I'm jumping to anger. I did that this week. I was, it was spring break. I was talking with my littlest, and she wanted me to do this, 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 and I could feel the building up, and then my wife asked me to do something, and I wanted to snap at my wife. And I'm saying, why do I want to snap at my wife? She didn't even know I, this was going on this week. That's ridiculous. It, there isn't a reason for that. And I, I have to, what's, what am I intaking that is bringing this angst up in me? And so I had to take a deep breath, count to 10, relax, and go. And it was just a simple question. It was just happened to be the timing when she asked. And I was like, wow, wow, what is this? Where is it coming from? And so one of the things that I've learned from this, it is good to count to 10. It is good to count to 10. It is better to take two deep breaths. If you want to work through anger, you take in a big breath. And you take another one. And if that doesn't work, you walk away and count to 10 again. Right? Because... When you take a deep breath, it actually lets the tension out, okay? It allows you to relax your muscles, and you can walk away from the situation. You don't have to answer right then. If somebody is demanding an answer right, I need to answer right now. Guess what? You don't have to give it right now. You can take a deep breath. You can keep yourself calm, and you can uh, work through that in your timing. Because God is ultimately in control of your life, right? And if he's in control, he can control your anger. And if he can control your anger, then you can let it, that show and reflect on the outside as well. So train yourself to see the bigger picture. Examine the consequences of your anger, especially after you get angry. You say, well, that's not the outcome I wanted. So I don't want that to happen again. How can I walk out of the situation next time it were to happen? Uh, Take a moment to control your emotions, say a quick prayer, take two deep breaths, and get back into the game. Sometimes that's all it takes. It's two deep breaths. Sometimes when we come home from work with the little kids around, and we come in and they want your attention right away, and your wife's ready for you to have their attention right away, because um, she's been dealing with them all day long, and you're like, she needs a break, you need a break, but... So you got to prepare when you walk in that door, before you walk in that door... How can I be, how can I serve my wife today? How can I serve my kids? I need to take two deep breaths before I walk in that door so I can do that. And maybe it's a husband or wife that's been home all by themselves all day. And they're ready for some social interaction. You've been interacting with people all day long and you just want, just, just give me 15 minutes to calm down. Okay. That's learning how to serve one another. Hus- the, the one at home needs to understand maybe they need to decompress a little bit. The one in, 
coming through the door needs to know that, hey, I might need your help right away. It's important for both. Because what is love? Sacrificial action, right? How do we love together? If both sides are giving, then you can come together, right? It's not codependent. It is serving one another, lifting the other one up. And if you're lifting, if I'm lifting up my wife and she's lifting me up, then we both have a firm foundation of Christ being in the center, holding us both up, right? That being that crossbar holding us up. So I think back at Peter's life, and I remember that Satan asked to sift out the disciples, and Jesus turned to Peter and said, remember this. That was in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31, if you want to look that up, where it says um, that Peter, um, Jesus told, says, he asked me to sift you all out. Peter, when this happens, remember this. I believe this could be very well have been that time that, that Peter would have been sifted out. He would have been so discouraged. If you look at Judas's story and you look at Peter's story, at this point in time, they're not that different. When he denies Jesus three times and Judas denies him right to his face, they're not that much different. Peter's willing to humble himself and surrender to Jesus' will for restoration. Judas was not. He didn't look to, and wait to see the outcome. So Peter eventually turns back to Jesus, and he becomes the leader of the church. Because when we surrender our identity to Christ, we become a new creation. Therefore, we walk by faith with purpose-driven life, knowing our destination is to be with him. Verse 19, we're going to read through 27. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. Jesus replied, everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me, and they know what I said. Then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? Jesus replied, if I had said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I am speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Then Anus brought Jesus and bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire warming himself, he said to he asked him or they asked him again, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, No, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Jesus had cut off, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, G Peter denied Jesus, and immediately a rooster crowed. Jesus stood up for what he believed. Peter did not. We see here Jesus only spoke a little bit at his trial. I want to say that Jesus said seven things while I was on the cross, uh, before that, he doesn't talk much when they ask him. This is about the only recorded time when Jesus really gives a whole sentence. He talks a little bit to Pilate, but he really doesn't talk much after this. 
And when he defends himself, he, sa- he refers to his earlier teaching and to the earlier crowds. If you have any questions about what I've taught, go ask them. They'll tell you exactly what I've said. They're good and reliable witnesses. Why aren't you asking them? However, they weren't interested in a dialogue. They were here with their minds made up. How about you? Did you come with your mind made up? We, know, we already know. You ever encounter a friend like that that already has their mind made up? Well, I already know. How are we doing in our spiritual lives? Are we open to change through Jesus Christ or have we come with our minds made up? Well, that's the way I am. That's the way I'm always going to be. I don't need to read the Bible. I already know what's in it anyway. Do we think that, but we don't actually say it out loud sometimes? How do we think that but not say it out loud by not reading our Bible? Well, I, I know what it says. It's, I get bored reading the same thing all the time. We always have excuses when it comes to reading the Bible, don't we? Maybe, maybe you don't. I like to. I thought we... So we come into this place, and what happens when our world is shattered and we are left alone to pick up all the pieces? Something that we can't explain, something that's so tragic that we don't know. Um, we're, we're sitting there in disbelief, much like Peter, right? Peter shows us how most of us would respond. He's like, Jesus, what, what are you doing? This was our time. We were supposed to... Sh- to shine, let's get in the game. You're sitting on the bench, right? All those good euphemisms we use as pastors to inspire action. Jesus isn't doing any of them. He is sitting on the sidelines. He's not speaking up for himself. What are you doing? They're going to kill you. If you don't say something now, you're a dead man. Who is this guy? He's never done this before. I don't th- feel like I know Jesus anymore. I thought we were going to make a difference. I thought we were going to change the world. Why is this happening? Hey, aren't you one of his disciples? No, I'm not, I'm not a disciple of that. Didn't I see you out there? Weren't you the guy? That wasn't me. Er, er, er. That was a speaker in there. Yeah, we got a... The double speaker out there. That's crazy. No, it was a speaker. It was still me. Um, when the heat is on, Jesus rose to the challenge because his identity was in his heavenly father. He knew why he came. Did Peter know why Jesus came? Yeah, Jesus told him three times. I've come to die. I'm going into Jerusalem to die. I'm going to die, guys. That's why I'm here. Okay? Well, I don't understand this. What, what are you talking about? Every single one of them. I, I, I don't know. What, what's he mean by die? Well, Lazarus died, and then he was raised again. Maybe we need to go die with Jesus, just like we died with Lazarus, and Jesus is going to do some amazing things. Again, they can't comprehend it because they've seen the miracles. They've seen how Jesus has conquered death over and over, how he's conquered sickness, how he's fulfilled the messianic prophecies that we've seen as we studied through the book of John. 
They've seen it. This is the Messiah. You can't kill a Messiah. He's going to save us from Rome. No, he's going to save us from our sins. Something so much more important. He's going to rise again. When the heat is on, Jesus rose to the challenge. Peter, on the other hand, had had placed his identity in earthly things. And his reaction is denial. That brings it home today. How do you have a foundation in Christ? Or your foundation is something of this world? Do you react in prayer? Or do you react in anger? Do you run from a crisis or do you stand up under the pressure through the power of the Holy Spirit? This reveals where our foundation is. This reveals where your foundation is. Bless you. Yep, I would say this is a lot like a plowshare. This is one of those illustrations that woke me up at 6 o'clock in the morning, so I'm going to share it with you. And I almost forgot to write it down, but I didn't. Technically, I think we're a lot like a plowshare. Do you guys know what a plowshare is? It's the spade that goes on side of the... um, the plow that goes down, digging in the earth. And you want to get even more specifically, it is the, the tip that goes in is the shear. That's the shear point that goes into the ground is the shear of the plow. Right? And I think we're a lot like the plow shear. We're not the powerful, almighty engine as a church. That's Christ, right? He is pulling us through to make a difference in the soil. We are not a thing of beauty. When, before we're put in the ground, we're usually rusted and, and tarnished, and we're not really anything fancy, or we've been painted black with the good old plow paint. You've done that before, Ralph? Get done at the end of the season. What are we doing this for? I don't know. What are we doing this for? I have no idea. This is me as a kid. Why are we painting this stupid plow? It's just going to go in the ground and get shiny all by itself again. I, I, didn't, I had no idea why we're doing that until you... Until you let a plow sit for a while, and it doesn't get painted, and then it goes to the ground, then you know. Uh, it pulls harder. Um, it's not shiny. It, it pits up with rust and, and things. We're not this thing of beauty, though. Not until, that is, we're placing the ground. And you go in as this black-painted good-for-nothing, ugly plow, and by the time you get to the other end of the field and you pull it out, and it's shiny and brilliant and amazing because it's gone through the ground. It's gone through all the abrasion. And as we go through, we're, we tend to be the hands and feet of the Lord. The tractor doesn't do the work, the plow does the work. The tractor supplies the power. God designed it that way, just like he designed the church. God could do the work, but he designed the church to be the implement. And so as he pulls us through the soil, we are supposed to impact those around us. We're the hands and the feet of the Lord. Watching him work through us is awesome, isn't it, church? When we get to see God do amazing things through us, it's like, wow, I want that. I want more. It's addictive, and it's what we're called to do in his grace. 
But what happens when that shear point starts to wear? What happens when it starts to get dull? Now, if you look at a plow shear point, when it wears, it pits. It, it goes up about an inch, and it wears in about a half, quarter inch, eventually a half inch if you get a really bad wear. And it takes away just at the point, not so far much back, and it'll eventually wear a line, and it'll get about six inches long, and then it's about worthless. It doesn't work. It won't penetrate the ground. If it does penetrate the ground, it makes the tractor pull hard. Does it, does it bother our tractor when he pulls harder? No, he's got all the power in the world. He can pull us right through there. He just pours on the coal, and we just keep dragging through that thing. It's not going to bother the tractor at all. No, it hurts the plow. When we start digging in, and, uh, and we're not going in sharp, how's that affect the rest of the plow? It starts pulling us off center, doesn't it? It starts. We start to drift. And we're supposed to pay attention to the truth that's been given to us so that we don't drift away from it. That's a paraphrased version of Hebrews 2.1. Or... The unimaginable, when the plow, it digs in and the, the tractor's going on, we hear this loud bang! And what happens? What just happened? The safety springs go, right? And it lifts that plow out of the ground, and it doesn't plow at all, does it? And if that trip spring trips once, it ain't going to go back in again. You can lift your plow up again. You can go for a while, but it's time to do maintenance on your plow because it's gonna. As soon as you hit the next rough patch, it'll it'll trip that thing again. And it is loud, isn't it, Brian? And if it's a shear pin, it's even louder, isn't it? Yes. So if you don't have the springs to catch those things, whoo man, it is loud, and it's like, oh man, I just broke the whole thing. You know it. You don't have to turn around. You just stop and you pull that plow out because something you either hit something or you got maintenance to do on that plow. Yeah, that's right. So that's why we need to continue to do the upkeep. We need to continue to be sharp in God's word. We need to continue to dig into the work that he has given us. We need to continue to pull true and a square in the soil by staying in his word. We need to keep the power of the tractor in this world as a reflection of Christ's love for us. And they will know that we are Christians by our love. That was one of our main points last week. Because when we surrender our identity to Christ, like we get to see with Peter when he's restored. That's going to be April 24th. I'm building that one up. I built it up last week too. We become a new creation. Therefore, we walk by faith with a purpose-driven life, knowing our destination to be with him. How do we find our purpose? We find it in Christ Jesus. When you can surrender to him and walk as he walks, you find purpose in life. You find a reason for living. It is not you. It is not what you have to offer. It is what he has to offer by living through him.
Okay, let's finish it up the chapter. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. So how long has Jesus been on trial? Since midnight, probably. Um, Now it's 6 o'clock, about six hours of a trial, right? Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor for more trials. And his his accusers didn't go inside because it was defiled them. They didn't didn't want to be allowed to, to celebrate, or they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have had handed him over to you if he wasn't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the old Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leader, lead priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to Jewish leaders. But the kingdom is not, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus replied, You say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. What's the next thing Pilate says? What is truth? Okay, I just told you what truth was. What is truth? He's thinking very analytically, very Greek-like. Jesus is talking very... Hebrew-like. Pilate asked, and then he went out and out again into the people and told them, he is not guilty of any crime, but you have a custom of letting me release one prisoner each year at the Passover. Would you like me to release the king of the Jews? But they, no, they shouted back, no, not that this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Jesus knew the truth. Pilate did not. Jesus knew the truth because he was God. And once again, we see Jesus standing before the power of the day with patience, with endurance, and with courage. And all Pilate can do is ask a rhetorical question, what is truth? I truly believe that Pilate did not know what truth was. I truly believe Pilate is like many today who do not understand a moral code, who do not place their foundation in something other than themselves, and they are, which allows them to be shifting sand and allows many moral things to go wrong. But when we believe and trust in God's word, we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. That's John 8.32, and we know Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So, is the world, how is the world to know this truth? Well, church, it's our responsibility to let them know. And right now, I'd say we're not doing the best job in the whole world. 
right? We're not doing the best job in the whole world. So let us not forget the rest of this passage. When Pilate questions these things, he then gives them this choice. You have a choice. You can take this notorious criminal. He's killed your people. He's killed my people. It's a, it's a no-brainer. Or you can kill Jesus. It is your choice. Who should we release? Who should we release? And they cried for Barabbas to be released. A murderous thug of a man. No Roman nor Jew would have ever picked him unless there was one they hated more. Unless there was one that was giving them more strife. Jesus claimed to be Messiah. Well, show us. If you're Messiah, get yourself out of this situation. These are the Romans that we're supposed to be taking over. If you're going to take a stand of the Messiah, this is as good a place as any. Show yourself. Take him out. He can't or he won't do anything for us. So then they said, crucify him. Crucify him. We want Barabbas. Release to us Barabbas. But at this point, we forget the details of Barabbas. We forget that he's this murderer. He, we forget what he's done to our brothers, our sisters, our cousins out in the fields and how he's started this revolution. We forget. And ask again, who is Barabbas? Is he deserving of life? He is the worst of all sinners, a murderer, defiant of the church and of Rome, the leader of a rebellion. He is the ultimate rebel. Friends, he's you and I. Anytime we sin against God, we are that rebel. We are the ones that have turned away. And Jesus is willing to take Barabbas's place. He's willing to take your place and my place as a sacrifice for all mankind. That is the truth. That Jesus died for you and he died for me. Jesus came to the earth as a sacrifice for all mankind. He didn't deserve it. He had to do it because I sinned, because you sinned. And this is not something that we can earn our way back into heaven because if it were, then he wouldn't have had to die in the first place. Yes, we are Barabbas in so many ways. And Jesus still died for you and I and many others like us. We have a responsibility to share that message with those around us. It starts with one. If we disciple one person a year, that's the illustration that's up there. It says there's the middle column and the far column. The middle column says if we, if we bring one person to the Lord every single day, we'd have 365 people every year. And that goes on. But if we disciple one person who turns into two 
And they disciple into two, and two multiply. Bless you. In 13 years, that multiplication, the exponential math passes up. I'm asking you to disciple one. Just one. And we can see what God has for in store for us. For when we surrender our identity to Christ, we become a new creation. Therefore, we walk by faith with purpose-driven life, knowing our destination is to be with Him. Maybe the Lord's working on your heart. Maybe you have something that you need to work on today. When we get right with God, amazing things happen, right? It comes down to that surrender point. And that's the hardest thing humanly possible, to give up our will, the last thing that we can think we can control, to the Lord. But, oh man, it's an amazing when, when we give that up, what He does, how He transforms our life, and it's something that is what it's supposed to be. Something that is true to its roots through Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, your gift of salvation. Lord, we surrender to you because you love us. You died for us. You're faithful even when we are not. You care for us with kindness. You treat us with compassion. You have a relationship of us that deals a lot with long-suffering because we turn away from you quite often. Lord, we praise you because you're a God who cares. You're a God who sacrifices. You're a God who gives the best for someone lowly like me. Lord, I pray that we would open up our eyes um, to see the wonders that you have for us and the truth of Christ Jesus, to understand what it means to, that you surrendered to the cross so that we might have life and that you just ask us to do the same thing, the example that you followed, that you set for us to follow. Lord, I pray that we would come before a loving God and lay our burden at the cross because you're an awesome God. Lord, we ask that you, for your guidance in this. We ask that you would direct our path. As you lead us, Lord, we ask for your hand of protection on us, our church, and our families. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.